I am Andrew Ron. I'm an accredited rural appraiser, and I am president of the Montana chapter of the ASFMRA and communications director for the Montana Farm and Ranch Brokers Association, the two top industry organizations in the state. I am also the proud creator of Montana LandSource, the industry standard for access to rural land listings and sales, and land market information and insights. There is no other more comprehensive resource for insider Montana land information than Montana LandSource. Go to www.mtlandsource.com. I am part of the Ranch Investor Podcast because I want to be part of the conversation with other top land experts on the future of the land market, land investment, land ownership, and management. I'm Coulter DeVries, owner of Ranch Investor Advisory and Brokerage Services. I'm an accredited land consultant with the Realtor Land Institute and proud member of ASFMRA. As a former commercial and ag banker, my main reason for doing this podcast is to simply gauge the market's appetite for crowdsourcing investment in a ranch real estate fund. This fund would allow you to hunt, fish, ride, camp, and recreate how you want while also enjoying the financial and portfolio benefits of investing in a large western ranch. For rural land enthusiasts who want to deepen their knowledge of the ranch real estate market, grow their portfolio, and be viewed as a trusted advisor, the Ranch Investor Podcast is the most downloaded and informative industry-specific content that intrigues while entertains. Curated by subject matter experts to give you immense benefit, because we believe your time is valuable. Oh yeah, we're going. We're good. Patrick Daly, welcome. Welcome to the Ranch Investor Podcast. Thank you for coming on. Um, I've been teasing everyone out there with some posts that we have an investment banker here from Chicago. How accurate is that? Well, I would say I'm from Chicago originally, um, but I've lived all over the country. And I do do investment banking as one of my uh, primary jobs. Um, although it's similar to yours, it's a, a hated profession in the United States. Everyone needs one when they're looking to buy or sell something. So, why why is it hated? I think people see investment bankers akin to accountants and lawyers, a lot of service providers who take, you know, fees out of transactions rather than see the amount of value they produce in the transaction. So generally, you know, companies that have used investment bankers to sell and get higher values still think it was the company solely and not the sales process. But it's been sort of shown throughout the last 20 years, there's a reason investment bankers are still around and still are even involved in cryptocurrency, right? It's because they generally understand financial markets and get better prices or better entry prices for an investor looking to buy an existing business. Well, um, yeah, we'll get into what an investment banker is versus private equity versus uh, registered investment advisor, all of that versus commercial banking. But um Let's stay on this topic of why you're why you're hated. I mean, there's uh, there's a big push, I think, in Congress from the left to take away carried interest. They feel like investment bankers are the rich serving the rich and the rich getting richer off the rich. It's cronyism. You guys you guys structure fees to only help each other. You just told me that you create value. Uh, Congress must not see that. Well, I would say, so the carried interest is a specific part of a structure on the tax code that involves private equity and real estate sponsors, whereby they're no, they put up no cash for what's called a profits interest or a carried interest, and they end up paying capital gains on that as opposed to ordinary income, which you and I would pay. 
So investment makers pay ordinary income. Private equity and real estate sponsors generally get an advantage in the tax code to pay roughly half of what we would pay for the same transaction. So the issue is it's in the aggregate, Coulter is a very small amount of dollars. There are a few people that benefit very heavily from it. But in general, compared to the overall t tax issues we have in the country, it doesn't really seem to move the needle in any direction. It's nice for campaign slogans, but the reason is once they get in power, no one goes after it. It's not worth it enough to fight those people. And remember, those people are the biggest donors on both sides of the party. So there's a lot of Republican private equity and real estate guys, but there's just as many, if not more, Democratic private equity and Republic, you know, real estate guys. So it's always going to be hard to get rid of that component of the tax code because they structure carried interest similar to way a person working at a company structures options. So if you take away the sponsor's ability to earn carried interest, you might also end up hurting employees at a startup that are actually getting sort of the same tax treatment as they are. And then remember, these guys, and I know some of them very well, they're very clever. They understand the tax code better than anyone in Washington. So the chances of you trying to actually catch them, they'll probably restructure something offshore similar to carried interest, and then they'll restructure something in crypto similar to carried interest. The idea that you're going to get some of the smartest people financially and you're going to regulate them, you and I agree the regulators exactly aren't, right? Um, I don't think that it's going to be viable, and it's, it's also just not economically necessary. Right. Um they both sides are benefiting from that, just like capital gains, 1031s. So 1031s came up in the last two years with the new administration. That that seems to only benefit those who are holding shares, stockholders, um, and only rich people hold shares and stocks, not realizing that everyone has a 401k. Uh, so 1031 came on the table of we got to we got to go after the rich and, and do away with 1031 and get our fair share of this transaction. The federal government saying we got to get our fair share of this, whatever fair might be. Um, but then they realized, oh, uh, we all own real estate and shares as well. And we don't really want to pay capital gains tax at an earned interest rate of 30%. We'd, we'd like, you know, we like the 15%, but we'd rather pay none. So they don't want to pay taxes either. And Al Gore, uh, you know, he, he created global warming with a PowerPoint presentation in 2006. Uh, I forget what the hell that PowerPoint was, but an inconvenient truth. This is why we need a producer. Someone can go live with me. But Al Gore has an investment firm. That was, that was his way of promoting his investment firm, was creating this, this fear in people, um, hoping that people would move their money to some of his investments, which was solar panels, wind, alternative energies, which at the time was just super speculative, but he had the contacts, the connections, and the political wherewithal to get some favorable regulation in, in, uh, the, in benefit of his investors, his investment firm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Al Gore, who, who created the religion of global warming, he, he doesn't want to do away with investment bankers, does he? Is it in his best interest? Yeah, I mean, well, Al would be, um, I mean, he's a very bright business guy, right? Yeah. So you just you just actually outline which would be a magnificent strategy for anyone. I don't know how <laughs> thought out it is versus, you know, I've, I've met, met him multiple times. I wouldn't consider him a close friend, but I know him well. He believe, you know, he, he doesn't, he believes in 
the climate change global warming narrative. It's not that he, he and I think he was also trying to, at the same time to start an investment firm to try to help solve it. And I've met, I mean, I was at a conference last week with a number of these, what you and I would call the climate investors. They're all trying to make a lot of money off it, but they also believe that there is an issue. That's, you know, and that's the thing is, is you and I, I don't, I don't first of all, the idea that Climate's changing isn't novel, right? It constantly changes. It's in change since there's been an existence on Earth. So climate change isn't something we can talk about. It's man-made climate change and man-made impact on the environment and how reversible it is and what technologies we can use. That's the ar the argument isn't about climate change or whatever people want to talk. It's really about where where the levers are that we can pull to um, get it to sort of see if humans can reverse some of warming. We also don't know how long warming has been in place, depending on how far you go back. So it's, I'm not one of those people, I'm not a climate scientist, but I also know that um, there's a lot of agendas and a lot of funding here on either side, and we can get in a lot of trouble talking about these things because it's not my area of expertise. I do know that there's, you see this as well, there, there's a lot of money, more money now is going into the trying to rectify the climate situation than there is in traditional extraction industries, right? There's much more money going into refining batteries or solar or trying to get better wind or better battery storage than there is new oil extraction techniques or new mining techniques, right? I think there's, you know, the, the shift in capital allocation will probably end up maybe reducing, you know, carbon emissions even further. The question is, is does that really impact the, uh, the climate? And I'm not really an expert to say that. I would say, though, going back to your original question about uh, Al Gore, though, I mean, he he definitely wouldn't want to get rid of investment bankers because when you go to sell a company or finance one of your companies, you want to get the lowest cost of capital, the highest sale price. So you're going to use, you know, smart investment banking people who actually would be able to offer your company up on an auction, similar to when you run a sales process for a ranch. You don't want to go to one. They don't want you to go to one buyer. They want you to go to five. And then hopefully they all start competing. So really, really, I would think of the investment banking side, akin to real estate brokerage. Um, a lot of the, you know, you you create more value sometimes for them by just going to the right investors and creating an auction process. That's similar to what a lot of investment bankers do. Um, of course, the difference is, is there's different regulations around it. And there's a, a whole host of... I would say legacy issues that have arose from the 1930s with the Securities Act that going till today. Um, but in general, the, the the wealthy in the United States on both sides of the aisle, the wealthy in the world, don't want to get rid of the financial markets or investment bankers because that's how they borrow cheaply and how they sell dearly. So we have a huge listenership that is very interested in some of the solutions being proposed for climate change, and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but there's a lot of interesting um, ventures out there, carbon, soil carbon sequestration through high-density, short-duration livestock rotational grazing, um, ecosystem services. So if your ranch is uh, drawing in migratory birds, if you're improving the riparian habitat, wetlands, um, a diversity of uh, flora, fauna species, wildlife species, that you're providing a public good and you should be rewarded for that. And I think one of the benefits of this uh, uh, ESG and a, a real critical look at ESG is 
people are thinking about um, real costs and benefits, the real uh, actual monetary benefit of a ranch. I mean, if you're in a watershed like where you and I are, Patrick lives in Carbon County, Montana. Um, I hope I, I hope I could say that. <laughs> uh, we're in a watershed, and so what we do does trickle down to. Um, it goes to Billings, and then Williston, and then um, St. Louis, and then New Orleans. So, uh, you know, if, if we if we have a good hydrological um, solution up in in our area, we should probably be rewarded for that by those who benefit from it. And I think there are really good programs. So, with that, all this interest, a lot of people want to know: uh, are investment bankers, private equity, hedge funds, um, your uh, your unions, uh, sovereign nation funds like Norway's two, nearly $2 trillion sovereign nation fund, are they going to start buying up ranch lands? We really haven't seen participation from institutional investors. It's all been private family wealth individuals. But do you foresee that that's going to shift, that there might be more yield, there might be more appreciation, there might be more ESG benefits to have that in your, your portfolio? So the long and short answer, I'd say yes. I think you're probably you're we're a little bit ahead of it talking about right now because the technologies you and I have discussed about carbon sequestration, different uh, rotational programs, as well as and I mean obviously, the one thing is people want to you know you want to restrict the amount of X produced or consumed, but also you can shift the balance of the equation right through different capture techniques, and there's enough. Um, I would say soil and ranch land in a place like Montana, it's probably undervalued by a significant amount when we actually start capturing and trading carbon as a commodity. So your carbon yield may be higher on some of those um, you know, lands up in the Missouri breaks better than you would ever get on ranch grazing or on farming. And in that, that market's coming, right? It's already happening in other states. We see that. And they're, they're, they're getting dollar yields, you know, selling off carbon. I think as that market matures and it spreads to every state, and it doesn't necessarily have to come from the hand of the federal government, this will come from the banks that are going to end up driving this or the exchanges. When they start driving that, I think there's a lot of people holding these vast holdings of land are going to end up benefiting significantly. And like you said, there's lands that maybe when you, when you sell a ranch, a lot of times the wetlands aren't really valued unless you're a bird hunter. But those wetlands are huge carbon sinks. And when those get valued, they may end up being worth more than the rangeland. And it's the same with, you know, uh, I would say low-density shrub or pine. Those still are great long-term, right, for the environment. Those are going to end up being worth something. Right now, you, you and I may say, well, they're worth a little bit. It's, uh, it's not that. It may be some hunting. That probably is going to go up in value relative to, um, you know, raw land around a city that's just for development because they may end up, punishing around the city for development, right? Because they're right. they're emitting more carbon. Whereas if you and I have a, a small cabin up in the mountains, it may end up being a lot more valuable with a hundred acres around it, even though you can't do anything economically today on it. But if we're actually gonna, like you said, value the commons better, whether it's water or carbon or even forestry, wildlife, I, that's probably all gonna happen relatively soon. So your your theory would be that the way land is today, even though annual yield, uh, well, let's say cap rate. So your your annual yield, which is basically grazing and hunting in Montana, um, and then let's net out a management fee, taxes and insurance to get a cap rate. You're looking at 
half a percent a year in Montana. I just, I mean, it can't go any lower, but you're saying that, it, uh, I mean, are you saying that it's probably undervalued today that if we monetize other um, commons, as you said, social goods, um, ecosystem services, that maybe that will produce a higher annual dividend yield. But I mean, sounds like sounds like uh, pasture is undervalued. And I, I would probably echo that pasture is probably undervalued. Most large probably track raw you know, lands undervalued. Um, it is one of those commodities that, you know, the joke is we're not making any more of it. There's actually less of it every year, right, due to erosion and seawater uh, level rise. So that's just something that I think um, it's also why you, but you, the first question that I didn't answer, I apologize, is why are wealthy families doing it and not the funds? Because wealthy families have a much longer time horizon. They're worried about their kids, 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 kids. And raw land over a 100-year cycle has never gone down in value probably anywhere in the world. And there's always a use for it. And we may find more. What I'm saying is, is we're not actually um, valuing carbon yield today. So that half percent yield may be a three and a half. Because right now we're not getting it, but it's sort of built into the soil. It's built into the reality of where we live. It's just not being valued by the financial markets today. And that also, I think a lot of people either buy that for um, potential land appreciation. And also it's a it's like an insurance policy, a safety against the world gone mad, which we saw a lot in the last couple of years. People from all over the world bought land in the West as a place they could go and be around sane, rational people. Can you uh, can you relate to that? Is that what uh, what brought you out west? I mean, you now have the you're in you're in the trees. Uh, you were once out of the trees. You could see the forest. Now you've been here almost three years. Um, you've made the change. You're living it that uh, people aspire for. People want to do what you have done. You came from Chicago, where I suspect every restaurant you went to on a Saturday night, someone knew you, um, given given how long you'd been in Chicago, um, just your social network there. You gave all that up for rural ass Montana. Uh, so what, what is it like? What, how has that change been? Has it been worth it? Is it, is this not a fad? Is it, is it a con, uh, shifting trend, uh, shift in consumer taste and preferences that this is the real deal or, or is it, uh, attrition and burnout going to happen? What's it been like for you? Well, it's been an experience. I've been fortunate. I've lived all over the country and semi-rural. This is the most rural I've lived. I've been here four years in May. And so I was a little ahead of sort of the COVID craziness curve. Um, and I traveled a fair amount. Prior to that, you know, I would be going to Chicago, Dallas, uh, the coasts for work periodically. So I think, you know, at different points in people's lives, there's um, different seasons. And that's just something I think that we can all relate to. And I've enjoyed living in cities. I've lived in New York City. I've lived in San Diego. I've lived in Chicago. Um, and... I think, you know, I lived in Moscow, I lived in a foreign city as well. All of these places are high density. Vukrashogavarichupangluski. <laughs> he had to, he, he studied the Russian just for this. <laughs> and um, I would say that, uh, you know, right now at this point in my life, I enjoy the rural lifestyle. I still like to go to cities, don't get me wrong, and there's an element to it. 
that is high energy and it's a lot of fun and it's great to see people and you sort of get the energy to see new things. I just don't need that, um, that dopamine hit as often as I maybe needed it when I was younger. And the other thing, Coulter, is that, you know, you grew up rural and now you live in a city, but you also get to go back and forth. So you're a hybrid. I grew up in a city. I didn't know really what it was like. So it's not like I had to, you know, I didn't live a year in four different places and say, I'll pick this. I just grew up by my notion of my family. And I think, you know, maybe everyone's biochemistry and um, their personal sort of choices. I think I just generally like a little bit more space and a little bit more clarity to think and read and do um, what I would call deep work. I think you can do that better in the country. It's the reason why so many... um, whether you're looking at scientists or philosophers or writers, go to the country to do the work and they go back to the city to present it. Why has that been going on forever? Well, there's an element to it that the noise and the, the of the city makes it hard to concentrate on things. So I think there's an element that maybe you ask the question is, is this a fad? I think there will be people, we'll have one cold winter in Montana, right? A really bad, well, this wasn't bad. We've had, we had maybe four years ago, we had a pretty um, good amount of snow. When we have one bad winter, you'll see a lot of people say, I'm not coming back. Now, the question for you and I is, are they going to sell? Are they going to just vacation rental their home and come up here for two weeks? That's the other thing that's hard to understand. In the last 10 years, 10 years ago, we had a second home. We had to just underwrite it solely as an expense. Because people are now utilizing, they're basically in the competition with hotels. They're not in competitions with you and I, but they're in competitions with hotels. So many people now will be like, oh, I'll just leave my house in Montana. I'll use it two months a year. And if I can rent it, then I can you know, uh, have enough yield to cover the cost. So then all of a sudden the equation has changed for all of us. And so I think that, you know, for, for when I look at it, I don't think there's going to be like a fire sale on Montana property anytime soon. And we know about the cost of construction and inflation. And also once you build a property in a certain location, you can't take that location, right? So you, have, you build a house on a river, you, no one's going to really build next to you if you own that land. So there's elements to um, the lifestyle that I think aren't going to go away. I don't think the, the market will go up, as you and I have talked, you know, the, the last two years, it's not going to continue for the next 10, but I also don't think it's all of a sudden going to precipitously drop. Montana didn't have much of a correction, according to the people I talked to in 08, 09, the way I saw in other parts of the world, and especially in the U.S., right? So even if there's a, a correction in real estate nationwide, I don't think there's going to be a huge correction here. Um, maybe some large ranches that you deal with, some of the owners may get in financial distress, they may need to sell. But the individual owners up here, I think a lot of them are just here to stay. And I've, I've met in, in, our, in our county, Carbon County, a number of retirees from California who are just like retired cops and government workers and firemen, and they can live in Montana cheaper. We have no sales tax. They don't have a lot of income, but they, they're comfortable, and they want to live the lifestyle, right? They want to hunt. They want to fish. They want to hike. They want to cross-country ski. They want to downhill ski. I mean, it is a wonderful, if you're an outdoors person, and the, you know, one thing I think the misnomers, 80% of people live in California are outdoors people. They like they live there to, to do those things. A lot of them are going to move and just partake in the experiences. We just hope they don't bring their politics. <laughs> yeah, and I'm I'm going to plug my uh, last season sponsor, LandTrust.com. Nick DeCastro, the founder, he's a good friend of mine, so um, I don't mind giving him free advertising right now, even though I asked him not to sponsor this year since I went independent with my brokerage firm and would rather keep Ranch Investor Ranch Investor. But Nick was a high performing, and you're going to probably want to invest in his company, Patrick. 
land trust. Uh, they're monetizing all the recreational benefits of ranches, but he was a high performing, uh, Silicon Valley startup, New York city, uh, startup. I mean, he, he was doing it. He was like the Uber type Airbnb entrepreneur. And he decided, uh, I would rather live where I play and have to travel for work. And I think, uh, I mean, you mentioned it with retirees and, and you in your forties, um, Nick's in his thirties family. Um, I think that this is, this change is hitting all generations. And that's a great point there. I think it's across gener- it's, a, it's, it's strange here because whether, you know, the, the nationwide response to COVID showed difference, a lot of difference between the states. And I think people now are paying more attention to who their governors are, who their county commissioners are than ever before. Maybe most people didn't even know that that mattered. But your mayors, county, your, your county sheriff, <laughs> may, mayors, city play, mayors. <laughs> city mayors in the West don't play as much of a role. The city managers are very powerful, but your county sheriffs are the de facto law enforcement arm. Yes. And if you have a good county sheriff who believes in the Constitution, he's going to take a much different bent than someone who's a political person who thinks they're trying to become another high, higher level political office. We have a great, you know, sheriff in Carbon. Um, I think that, you know, for for me when I look at sort of the across the whole country there's been a realignment and it's continuing and I don't even think we have handle on the numbers yet right the amount of people who've left and I don't mean left maybe they didn't sell their house but they bought their primary house in Salt Lake City and they still have a house in California and they're Airbnb it but they're not living there anymore or whether it's Denver or Dallas or Bozeman right or Missoula I think that those probably aren't going back because if you can work at least even part-time from your house. You have to travel to the office and do like we're doing in person here. This is great. I think with the, with the advent of more remote work, rural areas are going to become more and more appealing because for every person living in the city, I was living in the city. I would have preferred to live on a farm in Indiana and go to the city twice a week, but I had to be in the city for meetings. If I could have lived there and called in, I may still be living in the Midwest, right? It was because I was living in a concrete jungle and I could maybe get away you know, one weekend a month. But if I only had to come in the city one day a week and I could work remote from, you know, a, uh, a lodge in Wisconsin, all of a sudden it changes the landscape for what's available in around cities. And that's the thing. I, you know, a lot of my friends who live in New York, they've been spending more time in Vermont, more time in rural Connecticut, more time in rural New Jersey, which New Jersey is actually very rural, right? The western part of that state has great hunting. It's one of the largest black bears ever taken in the United States, about 800 pounds. It's People are just living maybe two, three hours from the city up, and, and they just come in two, three days a week. I think that will end up leveling some of the real estate market disruption all over because people are just saying, you know what, I don't, I don't need to live there to work there and then travel for play. I can sort of hybrid it both, and you maybe get a little bit of the best of both worlds. So, I've, I mean, you've done, you've done deals in probably tech and heavy, heavy industry and and uh, retail and brands and agriculture. You've seen a lot of different deals. And so real estate, I, w- I do want to ask you, people ask me, um, where where are the markets struggling? Because it doesn't seem like uh, anywhere is struggling in the U.S. right now that, yeah, Denver, Colorado, super hot. Idaho, Boise, very, very hot. Missoula, Bozeman, Montana, super hot. And these, Texas, especially people are coming from California, 
But then you look into, and I was doing research, like even Lubbock, Texas and Lincoln, Nebraska, they're, they're all hot, but there's no markets dying. So whoever's leaving LA, they have a ready buyer for their place in LA. What, what is going on that people are, can leave LA by the masses or they can leave New York City by the masses, but there's still someone there to take their place, that those markets are not dying. So that's an interesting question about the bid-ask and the depth of the markets. I echo that question a little bit. I think when I look at Chicago, I would have thought, you know, with some of the complications they've had both on the crime side, on the education side, the challenges they faced for the last, you know, decade, it's still like there hasn't been a drop in prices. No. Now, now that being said, um, the one place I think in the country where you've seen a, a sideways value is condos. And the reason is, you know, obviously um, during the COVID pandemic, they shut down a lot of amenities and buildings. So people were paying for things they couldn't use. So you really don't own them, right? It's owned by an association. Whereas if I have my own property, I can do whatever I want in my garage. You can't come in and tell me I can't use the gym, which is what they did in a lot of these, you know, high-end buildings. So I think there hasn't been any appreciation in the condo market in most cities. New York being the one probably, um, I would say, that, that that's a different market because of the amount of worldwide people that want to buy there. But the other thing is L.A. has a lot of international people who buy. So when the U.S. person sells in L.A., there's people from mainland China. There's people from Europe who want to have a home in Los Angeles, just to have a home in Los Angeles, right? Sort of a fantasy for a lot of wealthy people in the Middle East or in Russia. They'll just buy a home there and never be there. Now, that isn't good long-term for the L.A. economy is not doing well. The Denver economy is doing much better than the L.A.'s economy because people move to Denver to live there and spend money. L.A. and New York, they're not very busy relative because there's a lot of absentee owners. It's similar to sort of Aspen, Colorado versus Bozeman, right? Aspen has a lot of absentee owners, so in the off-season, there's no one at the restaurants or at retail. Bozeman's year-round busy because it's mostly, you and I would say, upper-middle-class people, not oligarchs, right? Los Angeles and New York have the oligarchs and all the people who work for them. And, and it doesn't, I don't mean that as a derogatory term. It's just the ultra-wealthy, right? We can say the ultra-high net worth is the proper, like, you know, financial terminology for it. The ultra-high net worth in Miami, L.A., New York, they, they're, they, they keep that market high all the time. Because remember, it's not just them. It's all the people who service them. Because they bring an entourage of people and bankers and financiers and lawyers and accountants that have to be near them when they're there. So they all may have to buy places in that locale. I would say, though, what's interesting is that may just be a function of this massive inflation we've seen. Generally, asset inflation, right? So you're mentioning all assets across the United States have gone up. You're looking at cryptos up. You're looking at the stock market. You're looking at there's no yield on bonds or levered loans. It's sort of there's right now everything's priced to perfection in an estimate. Even if the market pulls back 10%, it's still priced much higher above its you know 20-year moving average in terms of the PE. I would say that as we look going forward, you're going to have to think about pockets like you and I spoke about. Is So ranch land's up, but is it undervalued compared to where it will be five to ten years from now? If we're looking at the spot market, if we're always trying to chase today, all the investors that we look up to in the world, they looked five years out, they did their own calculation, and they said this is undervalued. And there's still investors putting money to work today. So there's obviously opportunity that maybe we're not all seeing, and this is the art of the investing side, right? They're either their discount rate, their growth rate, or what they think the market potential is larger. So that seems, and I, and I've, I like you, I have, you know, I like to look at rural real estate all around the United States, and it's all gone up, right? If you're within two hours, three hours, probably three hours of a city, it's up across the board Absolutely. in the U.S. 
And, and then there's some places like, you know, Tennessee where you can't buy anything, and that's a function of the local tax code, right? Zero percent tax, um, no corporate, no income, no personal. People just all want to locate there and then go work somewhere else, and they're going to pay. And that's a, another function for Texas, right? And Nevada, places like that, you really can't even get cheap property because people want to use that as their base and then own a ranch in Montana but not have this be their residency. No income tax in Wyoming. And Wyoming's another example. If they had... If you, you and I could put up a subdivision there and Cody would be sold out, and it wouldn't necessarily be anyone that would live there, they would maybe go there for a month. You know, because Domicile it, their business there. Two, two, yeah. two, three months a year, it's beautiful, right? But maybe they don't want to be there in, in the depth of winter or here, and they can break even, but they can they can pay for that house based on their taxes from California right. or Illinois or New York or a whole host of states. Even Montana, we have a relatively progressive income tax. And if you live down there and you come up here, the, the lowest tax people in the United States are the Wyoming people who shop in billing. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, sa- no sales, yeah. low property, no income. And and we have a lower fuel tax. So you can fuel up at Costco when you come to Billings on your run from Wyoming. Yep. They that is and I've always thought, man, I need to I need to find a way to just move my house thirty miles across the border into Wyoming because that would save us significantly. And you and you could you could have an apartment up here? which is what people do, right? I'll have an apartment, I need a place to crash, or I'll keep a short-term rental and I use it once in a while. But you could live in Sheridan or Cody. I think, and that's, but look at, you know, that's another reason Cheyenne has, has grown so quickly is because oh, yeah. it's close to Denver. Yes. So I could live in Cheyenne, work in Denver two days a week, three days a week. Think about the opportunity there. Colorado has relatively progressive tax like us. And I think that that's happening all across the world. That's why a lot of private equity and finance guys relocated to, to Tennessee, Texas, or Florida. Because when they're paying very high ordinary income tax rates, they can live in those states. They can do deals everywhere else, but they're able to be domiciled there. And also, you know, it's a function. Maybe they can, because they're saving so much more money, they can pay for private schools if there aren't good public schools. Um, I think the school issue is a problem everywhere in the country. So that's like, you know, there's an arbitrage there. If there's a good school somewhere, you can't buy in those districts. I mean, it's very difficult, even here in, in Billings. For sure. Our, us millennials are a big generation, and we're getting wealthier, um, not not just due to our own accord, but because we we are inheriting baby boomer wealth. So our ascension of wealth status class is pretty fast. Uh, millennials have it. You see this bullshit on Vox and um, Vice and any Bloomberg, that left-leaning news outlet that millennials have it so bad. They came of era during the 2008 recession. They developed their careers and started families during covid Millennials are the most disadvantaged generation there is. And I'm like, bullshit. We also created Uber, Airbnb. Crypto. Crypto. Fastest company ever to the, what, $100 billion market cap was Ethereum started by a teenager. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. I, I think that they're they're playing games with numbers. The And, and by, I'm not saying, you know, if you look at average net worth or time to buy a home. Yes, maybe. But are those the real values you're looking at? If you look at the intellectual um, knowledge they've been able to assume, the education levels, they're higher than they've ever been. They're right. So that, and that's the thing. And, and among that, women are outperforming men in both undergrad and graduate degrees. So this is going like it's leveled society out. And I think that you know, for the, for the forecast their life, they're going to have even more ability to compound wealth because your generation is going to live longer than any generation prior to it. Right. This is just the nature of the advances in medicine and people being generally healthier or seeing what happened to their parents and doing the opposite. 
Oh, yeah. It's, it's unbelievable the amount of opportunity we have available to us, um, but also the amount of opportunity that's, I don't want to sound like entitled, but that's coming to us from our parents, from baby boomers who've created a huge nest egg. And our parents didn't have that. They worked. Um, Your average baby boomer took shitty jobs in the summer as a high schooler. They worked through college. Your average millennial did not take shitty jobs in the summer, and they didn't work through college, but they're still going to get a huge nest egg from their parents. And that's a good you know, point. Maybe this segues a little into what you were going to ask about the, the growth in sort of RIAs um, in the United States across the board, right? The registered investment advisors. I've are, heard that. That's just, yeah. Well, there's, there's, huge there's numbers somewhere between 12 and, and 20 trillion, trillion dollars. So this is, that's going to exchange hands between what you're talking about, the baby boomers and the millennials. As that happens, the one thing also about millennials is you guys are you know, more fluent in technology and looking at, and you understand incentives, right? And that maybe is sort of inherent. I don't, maybe if I went into a discussion, they don't understand it, but they understand when someone has an incentive to do something against them. So that's something the RIA has a fiduciary responsibility. It's a legal term that they have to act in their client's best interest. Whereas a traditional broker in a wirehouse who's not an RIA, um, who we would call, you know, they, they actually don't have to act in your best interest. They have to act, they can act in their company's interest. The whole idea of the RIA was a specialty person, sort of like, like, a, like a financial planner who has to act in Coulter's best interest to give him the best financial plan based on your risk tolerances and your goals. So the rise in the RIA industry, which, I mean, we can get numbers on this. And when we have your producer will be able to do it 20 years ago, it was a small part of the financial industry. And now it's fastly growing to they're going to end up with the majority of the individual assets. And as that shift happens, as the millennials take over, they're going to be moving it mostly to RIAs because they want to make sure at least at the end of the day, you have to act in my interest legally. And if something goes wrong, I can fight with you about it. Whereas if it's a traditional structure, it didn't, they were just you know, acting for their own commission, their own standard. So the RIA industry is going to continue to grow. And as this wealth transfer happens, they're going to garner most of that wealth. So it may come out of commercial banks. It may come out of traditional wirehouses, which would be the big um, investment arms of the large commercial banks. And it's going to go to these smaller RAAs where you may know the person. You may play golf with the person or fish or hunt with them. And they may not have the best returns, but you know that they have your best interest at heart. And that's sort of what's probably going to happen in this. In the financial industry is going to keep this realignment happening over the next you know, 10 to 20 years. Well... Uh, for people who don't know Patrick Daly, um, I do want to give get a background from you. You are alpha as alpha male comes. If people are watching this on YouTube, which uh, also plugging YouTube channel, we're going to start releasing some, some pretty good behind the scenes episodes. But also, I'll be out interviewing ranchers, Casey Fitzsimmons, who's a former NFL player. We've got an episode coming up with him on YouTube. Um, talk about another alpha male so if, if someone's sensitive to hyper masculinity this this episode with Patrick Daly is probably not for you because his arms are huge uh, he's got some tats and you were special forces in Afghanistan before you were wearing a suit and tie is that right I think I took a security route so I'll I was a airborne infantryman then special operations support unit that um we did kinetic and non-kinetic activities with special operators. So 
I joined the military at 29, a little bit securities route. I had already finished my MBA. I had already worked in private equity and already worked in Wall Street and investment banker. So that's not the traditional route to go in the military. So you went from Wall Street to uh, to a, a grunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I enlisted and started at the 82nd Airborne in my career as a just a traditional infantryman. At 29, when most people, they're, I would say at 29, a lot of people's paths are pretty set, especially if you have a good thing going. And I, I know you did have a good thing going. You could have done, you had the world at your fingertips. You could have done anything you wanted um, with your... <clears throat> success in chicago I'm, I'm sure at 29 any friday night you'd walk into a restaurant and people would know you and shake your hands but you chose to go into the military you have to remember there's there's a specific um time in history right so there's always a timing aspect to markets to investments to life so this was 2004 the height of the iraq war we were losing the most amount of troops that we'd ever lost since you know i think probably since vietnam month by month. And so recruiting numbers were down. It was a tough period. I was 29 years old, decent shape, single, unattached, um, financially independent. At that time, I didn't you know, rely on anyone for anything. I had a decent, I had a well, very well-paying job. And one of the things I you know, thought about was, well, 10 years from now, I'm, I, can make a, I can make good money, I'll make a lot of money, and I'll be sitting at home probably wishing I went in the military. And so what I call this, this was more of a regret minimization decision as a joy maximizing. I didn't think about the, the tail risk of potentially dying because young men generally don't. And it's still, the, the absolute numbers were relatively small compared to the base, base rate, it was high. So on a, a probabilistic way, it was probably a high risk decision, but on an absolute risk decision, it wasn't that much higher. And so, you know, when I looked at it, it was something that I figured this is gonna be one of the longest wars in American history. I'm a 29-year-old single unattached male. I probably should go serve my country. Um, and it was simply that. It wasn't, I think some people thought I wanted to do it to ultimately go into politics, but obviously that didn't pan out because I'm, <laughs> I'm in the same profession I was in 2004. I'm doing the same thing I, now that I did before I was in. And I think that it was purely a patriotic decision. And I didn't really get into, I wasn't you know, necessarily thinking about the, the reasons for going into the war. Right. And this is so it wasn't a political decision. I wasn't lauding, hey, the Iraq war was great. The Afghanistan, you know, war in Afghanistan. The war in Afghanistan wasn't necessary because we were rooting out the people that attacked us on September 11th, where I was living in New York at the time. And I was there when the towers fell. So it was sort of uniquely personal to me on that. I had some friends pass away in there. And it was something that probably will always live with me the rest of my life, along with everyone who was in New York at that time. And I think that that was my way to give back. And there's other ways, you know, I respect, there's a, I could have become an analyst in the CIA or done other things that, but as you can tell, like I'm a high testosterone male, so the chances of me wanting to go work in the State Department or the CIA are much lesser than jump out of planes and carry machine guns around and have fun doing that stuff. So I loved my military service and some of the best friends in my life are people that I met in the military. So that's something that, you know, I'm, I'm glad I get to carry with me. I made it through. A lot of people didn't, so I made it through, and uh, you know, I think that it's one of those things that I'll be able to look back at for the rest of my life and be like, made the tough decision at the time, but in the long run, it was the right one. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure uh, it just fits with your values, because you and I went hunting in the Castle Mountains, and you were a fish in water. It was, it was that Castle Mountains, that hunt was pretty piss poor for us, because it was windy, no elk, and I got us stuck. You had to push us out. <laughs> 
But you, uh, I mean, you were just so natural. Um, it was easy for you. It wasn't, uh, it was relaxing. It seemed like it wasn't high stress. You knew what you were doing. Uh, not that we were in any sort of danger. That's, that's not what this is about. It's just, it can get frustrating when you get stuck and when you're not seeing elk and when it's windy, but you, I mean, you obviously have a different paradigm because you see propane tanks when we drive around. <laughs> but inside joke there is uh, Patrick does not like white propane tanks outside of large custom homes in Montana. Well, my only issue there is how you and I talked about it's just not that much more to bury them. So why wouldn't we just bury <laughs> propane tanks as opposed to something that could destroy your house above ground next to it and just the natural beauty disruption yeah but just going back to i mean you how long were you in afghanistan i mean you were you went from probably having a pretty damn nice condo in new york city and chicago and everywhere you've been i would bet five star michelin restaurants especially in your 20s when you're using the company card man I loved my 20s in the company card <laughs> you went to that to shitting in a bucket and having to burn your shit out back. Well, you know, and I think part of that culture is something maybe you ta alluded to earlier was, you know, the range that some of our parents had, right? So they, they sort of had to work uh, pretty shitty jobs at different times in their life, and that gave them perspective. And I always saw myself as I could, I like, you know, I can go to the five-star Michelin restaurant, I can go to the Four Seasons, but I can also sleep in the bed of a pickup truck with a sleeping bag and be just as fine. I think that range, that ability, both intellectually and physically, to thrive under different conditions, is probably a, a high-value survival mechanism, right? That we can we can cook and kill something, kill something and cook it and eat it, as well as go to a restaurant and have one of the top chefs in the world prepare it. And that's something to me that I always maybe looked up to in other people. So older figures that I knew that had that range ability. You know, they, they could fly private, they could fly coach. And they would, you know, you would always prefer to fly private, yes. But if you flew coach, it wouldn't ruin your life. It wasn't like, you know, and if I have to eat McDonald's on a road trip, I'm not going to complain forever about it. You just go on to the next thing and you look forward to the next meal. Whereas I think if you, uh, that status anxiety or that anchoring point, if you get too used to too good of a life and you anchor there, that lack of flexibility, I think, doesn't make people very, you know, happy in the long run. Yeah, and for our listeners, <clears throat> I've given no background on Patrick, but I've spent enough time with him to know that he's probably not the stereotype of investment banker or privileged urban, um, successful financial industries. Um, he's super educated. I forget what your education is, but beyond education, it's it's philosophical. He can he can recite Camus and Kant and. Kierkegaard like no other he's he's very philosophical and I, I kind of think that that's just what little I know of you that's playing through in your investment strategies today I mean you moved to Montana you invested in a meat packer um, you're all about seeing better beef produced in Montana and in the northern Great Plains you looked at the economics and it might be beyond economics but you're putting your money where your values are you've bought farm ground that is going to be farmed for um, better soil uh, management, better uh, hydrological cycle management, better species management, um, less waste. I mean, when it comes to chemical use fertilizers, um, 
you're actually you're out there doing deals with your own money into things that may be aspirational, but I don't know, it seems like it drives you that those are your core values. Well, I think um, it's a good question is the, stu- the stewardship of the land, right? We were given this great country by our forebearers. And I think that there's, we at, you know, where we are in our life, it, they, there was a lot of the heavy lifting was done ahead of us. There's heavy lifting to come and there's always challenges for every generation. But we're in a place where if we take good care of the land and we take good care of the industries and good care of the other Americans, I mean, we're, we're starting on third base in the United States for the whole world. And I know it's hard for maybe everyone. I definitely had a huge head start on a lot of people and I had great, you know, I had a two parent house and my parents were educated and I was given the ability to get educated as well. And I think that, but relative to the world, the lowest person in America is still upper middle class. And that's what I think people don't really understand is in, in the United States, the, the lowest income person is upper middle class in terms of income for the entire earth. And that's not easy unless you've traveled and you've seen other places um, that there's, there's an advantage for everyone in the United States. Yes, we can move more people from the lower part of the United States to the middle and we can improve their lot, but it's not that easy without you know an incredible... Um, and I would say unbearable hand of the government. You and I are both more aligned politically in the sense that we want market solutions and we want less government intervention and want more of the, the people in the markets to take care of those. You, you might not want to attach your <clears throat> position to mine because I, I can be pretty pretty uh, Montana Freeman. <laughs> I mean, I would get, you, you can be more hard-form libertarian. Yes. And I'm, more on the classical liberal weak form libertarian side but i think we're but you know in terms of you may want less government intervention but at the end of the day you understand there's probably a need for some regulatory regulation or government now there's there's places like montana that may not need that much but there's when when you get a lot of people in a uh, tight area like a city there's more need for for common sort of policing and defense and utilities because the people wouldn't there's there's too much network externalities to the density. I think as you spread out, there's a lot more relying on your neighbor, relying on a handful of people, right, that you don't need nearly as much government. You can figure out a lot of things yourself. And that's why there's always been a tension in the United States between the rural and the urban, because rural people have things fixed before the government gets there. And a lot of the urban people don't have the ability to fix anything until the government gets there, right? They don't have heavy machinery. They don't have people skilled in trades. They don't have as many uh, blue-collar abilities. Whereas in, in the country, generally for the last 100 years, there's people generally taking care of themselves. Highly recommended book is Vigilantes of Montana. It's a, definitely a proud uh, history and heritage of Montana, and it goes back to Bannock, our first gold rush in Virginia City, 1863, 1864, when uh, there was there were no law. We were, we were still a territory. Um, still uh, had Indian tribes, but uh, it, it explains it was written within five years of, of Bannock and Virginia City's boom. It was a firsthand account, and uh, it's deemed kind of a justification and explainer for why vigilanteism was necessary. And uh, very good book. I highly recommend Vigilantes of Montana. Um, but we're approaching the top of the hour. I think I think people are going to want to hear more from you. Um, please do comment, send a message, uh, let us know what you thought of this episode. Uh, Patrick, he uh, works here in Billings, lives in Carbon County, 
I'm sure he'd, I could get him on again. Uh, there's plenty more I wanted to talk about. We do need to get into um, what's wrong with the ranch. Uh, where is this going? If, if, if uh, funds go this way, we will, will we become a feudalist society? Will there be serfdom? I'm a huge private property guy, and I believe that individuals' liberties are around private property. Uh, owning, um, owning land is, is freedom. And so that could be, uh, that could be threatening to future, um, societies. If, if we don't have individual landowners on a large scale, um, that does worry me and a lot of our listeners. So maybe, uh, on the next episode we can dig in. What are your thoughts? I think I'd be happy to dig into that. I, um, again, this was, I took a, um, graduate class in undergrad that was on um, the idea of freedom and how it arose from uh, democracies throughout history, mostly because of the division between, you know, the, the slave and the free man. And one of the things about the free man is the, ultimately their vote was tied to ownership of land in most historical democracies prior to even the United States. Originally, they thought of it like that, but our founders ended up changing the rules. They were all pushing for more tied to the land, similar to the Romans and the Greeks. And so I think I do agree with you if people become non-owners in a society, that's what we're, we're worried about today is if they, they don't, they, if they rent their house and they rent their car or they don't own a car and they're really just a surf worker, they have no ability to accumulate assets unless they're lucky enough to have parents pass them assets and then they can become an owner, we're going to end up with a very unstable society. And all of the societies in history, when you have that much of a divide, if you look back, have had usually uh, violence, right? Violent revolts or you know, cracks in the social fabric that were irreparable. I think that your instincts are right. It's probably something we can delve into, but as the wealth gets concentrated more and more in the hands of some of these funds, even though you may own part of, you know, you may own funds in BlackRock, but if they own the land and you don't, you don't really feel the ownership in BlackRock. It's more of a financial instrument. Whereas when you and I walk on the land we own, we own that land. And you're going to have to come take that from me. And it's not going to end well for you or I, but it's probably going to end less well for you. And that's one of the things that has always been part part of the United States of America, right? And it's one of those things I think we need to keep a hold on because the people invested in the society, the landowners and the owners, well, even if they own a quarter of an acre, it's not, it's not about the wealth. It's about your ownership mentality. I think that that plays better in for the long-term health of the United States. If we become a financial owners only and the large funds and the large corporates and the large the few ultra ultra high net worth individuals own the majority of the assets that's not going to last either right it's just not going to last in place and that's conflicting with my libertarian values because i don't know how you restrict black black rock and tia craft from owning farmland black rock from owning single family homes that's the hot button topic right now right um i don't know how you do that uh, and still be a free, independent society. You're, you're targeting, you're setting up the rules of the game, which, I mean, I have to accept that we're going to do that as a society. But at some point, uh, all these things do conflict with my purest, absolutist in, uh, independence and liberties that I don't, I don't think you should restrict BlackRock from owning single-family homes because where, where do you draw the line? And I get that that's a slippery slope. But analogy, um, but yeah, that's. Uh, I, I have a friend who said 400 years ago to prove title, you had to raise an army, <laughs> 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 and I like that. Um, 
and today we don't. We have a good society where individuals, which at I am <clears throat> at, at the end of the day, my core beliefs are individualism. Well, thanks, Patrick. This has been great. We should get you on again. Um, I think you've got a lot more to cover here. Yep. Thank you, Coulter. Happy to answer any questions from the audience to yourself next time. Thanks All right. YouTube channel. Um, we got some good episodes coming up. Casey Fitzsimmons. I'm going to get a spring bear hunting episode coming up. And, well, shit, Patrick, we should go do one out in the field as well. Let's do it. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. As a real estate and finance professional, we know that you want to be a top producer and high performer. In order to do that, you need to grow your portfolio, grow your influence. The problem is rural real estate is a private and closed off network that is very difficult to enter and gain acceptance within. It's a nuanced segment that requires years of experience. This may make you feel frustrated or even scared given the high costs of getting established. We get it. But in the age of information, we believe you already have inexpensive access to knowledge and resources that would improve your competency. We understand that you feel as though you don't have time for continuing education or that you'll worry that you're wasting your time on redundant and obsolete information. For this reason, we feature only the best accredited and established rural real estate professionals who analyze, transact, and manage billions of dollars annually. No newbies here. Your goal is to efficiently improve your business and be viewed as a trusted advisor. So here's how we can do that together. 1. Starting right now, make a simple commitment to self-improvement. 2. Be sure to make it easy, convenient, and attainable. Rigidity rarely works in the long run for transformation. 3. Make your structure of self-improvement entertaining and engaging. If it's fun and intriguing, you'll have a better shot at making it last. With that in mind, click subscribe on your streaming platform so you know when the latest episode has dropped. Then go to ranchinvestor.com slash podcast and subscribe to our monthly newsletter. We also have a private Facebook group simply called Ranch Investor. And this is where we can best interact with you by answering your questions and taking your recommendations. Most exciting though, is being able to follow us on YouTube by clicking the subscribe button. In the meantime, keep a notepad and pen handy. You'll undoubtedly be thinking of clients and peers in mind as you listen. Go ahead and text or email them a link to this episode for your constant contact, CRM, and your goals of being a center of influence, the expert in your field. Stick with it, and soon you'll stop waiting for the phone to ring with new business. Be the source of knowledge and the maven that other professionals are excited to refer.